Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, November 7th through Tuesday, November 12th feature Ricardo Muti leading a program of Wagner, the Overture to the Flying Dutchman, with CSO Associate Concertmaster Stephanie Jiang and Assistant Principal Cello Kenneth Olson, the Brahms Double Concerto, and after intermission, the Rhenish, the Rhine Symphony No. 3 by Robert Schumann. Here are Philip Huscher's program notes on Brahms' Concerto for Violin and Cello, the Opus 102, the work known as the Double Concerto, a work lasting about 31 minutes. For Brahms, the year 1887 launched a period of tying up loose ends, finishing business, and clearing his desk. He began by asking Clara Schumann, with whom he had long shared his most intimate thoughts, to return all the letters he had written to her over the years. Clara, clearly stunned, at first hoped to extract everything relating to his artistic or private life, but he would not hear of it. She wrote in her diary of October 16, and so today I handed them over to him with tears. Two days later, Brahms conducted the premiere of his final orchestral composition, this concerto for violin and cello, or the double concerto as it would soon be known. Brahms privately decided to quit composing for good, and in 1890 he wrote to his publisher, Fritz Schimrock, that he had thrown a lot of torn-up manuscript paper into the Traun River and that he had abandoned his Fifth Symphony. But Brahms was not yet done writing music. Inspired by the playing of clarinetist Richard Milfeld, he wrote a clarinet trio and quintet in 1891 and two clarinet sonatas in 1894. Clara's death in 1896 prompted his last work, The Four Serious Songs. The double concerto, written for the great violinist Josef Joachim and Robert Hausmann, the cellist in the Joachim Quartet, was less a work of farewell than of reconciliation. In 1887, Brahms and Joachim were no longer speaking. They had been best friends almost from the day they met in May 1853. Brahms was 20, Joachim 22. It was Joachim who had introduced the shy young composer to the Schumanns, leading Robert to write an influential newspaper column proclaiming Brahms a young eagle and arousing in Clara feelings of an intensity and emotional complexity that she would never completely shake. Brahms and Joachim were close for many years. They talked often about everything that mattered to them from affairs of the heart to business. Joachim offered indispensable advice on technical matters throughout the composition of Brahms' violin concerto. Then, in 1880, Joachim, who had always been a helplessly jealous man, began to suspect that his wife, the contralto Amalie Spies, was having an affair with Fritz Schimrock, Brahms's publisher. Brahms wrote a long letter insisting on Amelie's innocence, a clumsy attempt to patch up the Joachim's faltering marriage that only precipitated their divorce and put an end to the friendship between the two men. For years, Brahms wrote to Joachim and sent him scores, but although he continued to play Brahms's music, Joachim no longer wanted his companionship. During the summer of 1887, after Brahms settled in a rented villa overlooking Lake Thun in Switzerland, he seized upon a novel plan. In August, Brahms wrote Joachim one last letter, saying that he had been unable to resist composing a new concerto for him and Hausmann, and that if Joachim wasn't interested, he should simply write, I decline, on a postcard. 
If not, Brahms continued, my questions begin. Would you like to see a sample? I am now copying the solo parts. Do you feel like getting together with Hausmann to check them for playability? Could you think about trying the piece with Hausmann and me at the piano, and eventually with three of us with orchestra in some town or other? I won't say out loud and specifically what I quietly hope and wish. This was the peace offering that Joachim ultimately could not refuse, and like many a listener since, he melted as soon as he heard the music. With Hausmann, Joachim met Brahms at Clara's house in Baden-Baden in late September. It was the first time the two men had spoken in seven years. They played through the work around Clara's piano and then with the local orchestra. Although the music-making went splendidly and the conversation showed no signs of strain, Brahms and Joachim immediately reverted to the intimate do, the old closeness was gone, and their friendship seemed now for certain to be over for good. Together, the three men began to prepare for the premiere, which the composer conducted in Cologne the following month. The reception was surprisingly tepid, and even Brahms's old friend Theodor Billroth later told the critic Eduard Hanslick that he found the concerto's closely wrought style tedious and wearisome, a really senile production, as he tastelessly put it. As with Beethoven, whose final visionary works were dismissed because of his deafness, the novelties of Brahms's old age convinced even his best friends that he was simply washed up. At the American premiere in New York in 1889, conducted by Theodore Thomas with Victor Herbert in his pre-operetta days as the cellist, the score was dismissed as not the most catchy thing imaginable. It was years before the double concerto was accepted as the equal of Brahms's other concertos. It was the last of the four to appear on Chicago symphony programs and is still the least often played. The idea of writing a concerto for more than one soloist was unfamiliar in the late 19th century, and even Brahms, who knew music history better than any composer of the day, probably could not think of any distinguished models other than the double violin concerto by Bach, Mozart's Sinfonia Concertante for violin and viola, and Beethoven's triple concerto for violin, cello, and piano. Brahms's pairing of violin and cello was particularly unexpected, Surely this wonderful combination has never been tried before, Clara wrote at the time, and it is truly without precedent. Brahms himself described the score simply as a strange flight of fancy, although it is the logical culmination of his longtime interest in the Baroque concerto grosso form with its team of soloists. Brahms, incidentally, was a great champion of Handel's music, and in 1874 he conducted a performance of Solomon in Vienna. Brahms had written his two piano concertos for himself to play, and he had composed his violin concerto in consultation with Joachim. Now, however, he was on his own, and he was clearly uncomfortable. I ought to have handed on the idea to someone who knows the violin better than I do. Joachim has unfortunately given up composing, he wrote to Clara at one point. It is a very different matter writing for instruments whose nature and sound one only has a chance acquaintance with or only hears in one's mind from writing for an instrument that one knows as thoroughly as I know the piano. Clara reminded him, apparently without providing consolation, that he had written four symphonies. Music for solo cello with orchestra in particular was unusual in Brahms's day. Robert Schumann's cello concerto of 1850 was not yet known. Brahms's famous comment on first seeing the score to Dvorak's cello concerto shortly before he died confirms its novelty. 
Why on earth didn't I know one could write a cello concerto like this? If I'd only known, I'd have written one long ago. Throughout Brahms's concerto, the cello takes the lead. Perhaps his role was to mediate between composer and violinist. Brahms begins with two cadenzas, each introduced by the orchestra. And while the first one for cello is long and expansive, the second for violin quickly turns into a duet with the cello. Despite its monumentality, the whole first movement is an extended dialogue, by turns intimate, heated, consoling, and ultimately conciliatory, for two instruments so alike in design, yet so very different in character. The solo music throughout is extraordinarily difficult, yet there is very little obvious virtuoso spectacle. Brahms saves for a few telling moments the simple but stunning effect of having the violin and cello play in octaves. The orchestral writing, for all its power, is uncommonly clear and economical. The entire movement is a masterful union of symphonic energy and inward lyricism. In the slow movement, a horn call cues a generous, deep-voiced melody played by the soloist again in octaves. Brahms's command of color is so subtle and his orchestration so inventive that each repetition of the tune brings a sense of variation. An elaborate and demanding, though unshowy, double cadenza leads to one last exploration of the theme. The finale, surprisingly for such a grand and powerful work, is both playful and humorous, intended as it was for the man with whom Brahms once regularly shared jokes and laughter. Just before the end, a tender and almost wistful mood sweeps through the music, but Brahms had written this concerto in order to bring Joachim into his life again, and in the final page, so resolute and joyous, he never looks back. Program Notes by Philip Huscher on the Double Concerto for Violin and Cello by Johannes Brahms. And now on to Robert Schumann's Symphony No. 3, The Rhenish. The performance time around 31 minutes. In his best-selling neurological case study, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, Oliver Sacks tells of Dr. P, an eminent musician and professor who can no longer make sense of what he sees. He relies on Schumann's music to keep his bearings, and every action in his daily life is linked to a musical theme. Sachs, a British neurologist best known for Awakenings, which was made into a motion picture starring Robert De Niro and Robin Williams, and among other popular books, Musicophilia, Tales of Music and the Brain, and a new bestseller, Hallucinations, published late last year, explains the real hero of Hat is surely music, the power of music to organize and integrate, to knit or re-knit a shattered world into sense. The year Robert Schumann was born, his father was attacked by a nervous affliction that troubled him the rest of his life. Schumann's own medical history is full of mysterious ailments and breakdowns, depression, hallucinations, persistent trembling, a recurring fear of sharp metal objects, and, most painfully for a musician, tinnitus, a constant ringing in the ears. We now think that his mental instability first showed up when he was still in his teens. In 1844, at the age of 34, when he suffered his worst breakdown, composing was out of the question, and he couldn't even bear to listen to music, which cuts into my nerves, he complained, as if with knives. 
Certainly in his last years, when syphilis caused his decline, music didn't have the power to re-knit his shattered world, although he spoke of wonderfully beautiful music constantly playing in his head. In February 1854, just before he was institutionalized, he was haunted by devils and visited by angels who sang to him in E-flat. He finally ran out of the house and threw himself into the Rhine. The fisherman, who saved him and took him home to his wife Clara, didn't recognize one of Düsseldorf's most distinguished citizens, the famous composer who only four years earlier had written his last symphony in loving tribute to the Rhine River. Even in 1850, when Schumann began this E-flat symphony, he wasn't in the best of shape. He and Clara had recently moved to Düsseldorf with some misgivings once he learned of the asylum there because he didn't like to be reminded of mental instability. At first, Schumann was unable to compose there because of the street noise. A visit to Cologne in late September 1850 greatly inspired him, and in October he began his cello concerto and on November 2nd a new symphony in E-flat. The first movement was sketched in a week, and despite taking time out for another trip to Cologne, the entire work was finished by December 9th. Although Schumann sometimes is criticized for being unsympathetic to the symphonic language, the magnificent opening of this E-flat symphony argues otherwise. Here is a grand, striding theme that is both broad and powerful, obviously conceived in orchestral terms and ideal for symphonic treatment. Schumann writing for orchestra with the same command we find in his piano music. Schumann originally called this music a piece of life by the Rhine. He had already captured the Rhine in song, the majestic Im Rhein im Heiligenströme, in the Rhine in the Holy River from Dichterliebe, for example. But now, working with the full orchestral palette, Schumann creates one of the great German romantic musical landscapes. It's a landscape by suggestion, because this isn't a programmatic symphony, like Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. It's the expression of feelings rather than painting. Unlike Beethoven, Schumann doesn't include bird calls or thunderstorms to cloud the issue. If the Rhenish symphony suggests Beethoven at all, and few musicians at the time saw the resemblance, it's the Beethoven of the Eroica symphony, also in E-flat. In the vast unfolding of his first movement, Schumann is working on a Beethovenian scale and with material worthy of the grand dimensions. It's largely through the sheer power of his main theme that Schumann sustains such an impressive movement because development of the classical sort was never his strength. And even here, he relies on simple sequential repetition in place of thematic sleight of hand. There's a splendid surge of energy and a new melody cleverly placed just before the end. The next two movements are modest, taking their cue not from Beethoven's Eroica, which reaffirms the grandeur of its opening with each following movement, but from the slow movement of Beethoven's Eighth, famous for daring to be so unassuming. Schumann first gives us a slow landler with a lovely rolling theme in the low strings as a gentle alternative to a traditional scherzo. A tiny, slow movement as delicate in dimension and scope as any of Schumann's miniatures for solo piano follows. 
The fourth movement is really part of the finale, a grand processional leading to a triumphant conclusion, even though they're written as two separate sections. The inspiration for this majestic and solemn music came to Robert on the Schumann's second trip to Cologne in November 1850 for the installation of the Archbishop of Cologne as Cardinal, which was held in the magnificent cathedral there. Schumann immediately sets the ceremonial tone with a simple chorale in E-flat minor for three trombones. The music moves majestically, growing in strength and polyphonic complexity. And then, with the swift entrance of a striding new theme, Schumann launches his finale, an uncomplicated song of triumph in E-flat. The cathedral music returns near the end, transformed by its bright new surroundings. A passing reference to the symphony's bold opening leads to a volley of E-flat chords. Schumann conducted the first performance of the Rhenish Symphony on February 6, 1851 in Dusseldorf. Just three years later, he was confined to a private asylum in nearby Andenich. Clara was not allowed to see him for nearly two and a half years. When she finally visited him on July 27, 1856, Schumann, unlike Dr. P, recognized his wife at once but he was unable to speak intelligibly. When he died, two days later, Clara and the young Johannes Brahms were at his side. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Robert Schumann's Symphony No. 3, The Rhenish. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.